Let us now listen to these words from the New Testament, from the book of Romans, chapter 4. Let us listen for the word of the Lord speaking to us here and now. For the promise that he would inherit the world did not come to Abraham or to his descendants through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Hoping against hope, he believed he would become the father of many nations, according to what was said, so numerous shall your descendants be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was already as good as dead, for he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, being fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Therefore, his faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now the words, it was reckoned to him, were written not for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be reckoned to us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was handed over to death for our trespasses and was raised for our justification. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As Alec mentioned earlier, we are currently preaching a series drawn from the scripture lesson we heard last week, where a father erupts with the exclamation to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. We'll be exploring the different ways we have to face our own unbelief and pray to God in the midst of it. I recently read an article written by Chris Hoke, a pastor and a prison chaplain in Washington State. Chris describes teaching a Bible study in a prison and one of the young men he met there named Richard. When Richard at some point was telling Chris his story, this is what he recounted. Someone called the cops on Richard as soon as he was born. As soon as his 15-year-old mother had finished giving birth, she slipped out of the Valley Hospital and left him there. When a nurse saw the squirming infant, she immediately picked up the phone and called the police. Richard could remember sitting in court when the state tried to force his mother to claim him. Many children suffer through watching their parents fight over them, but seated on a wooden bench behind the lawyers, his small feet not yet reaching the floor. Richard remembers looking on as representatives of the state fought his mother for the opposite reason. Neither party wanted him. Sometimes the state won, and he felt her begrudging hand leading him out of the courtroom door. But just as often, the small boy watched his mother walk out of the court without her eyes able to meet his. So years later, Richard could hardly contain his delight when a helicopter and multiple squad cars chased him at high speeds through neighborhoods and down farm roads. The thrill of so many people laboring to keep him in their sights, sparing no cost to get their hands on him. Richard had been burglarizing a house with his new partners when the police spotted him and the hunt began. He managed to prolong the search for three days, disappearing each evening. As he swung the stolen sedan through corners of potato fields and long rows of beets, Richard shot his twitching gaze past the rear window and saw how the squad cars would not give up on him. 
When he was finally caught, Richard remembered the officer admitting, I gotta hand it to you, Mr. Mejia. You've got a lot of respect out there on the streets. And this made Richard smile, but it did not surprise him. Unlike a lot of thieves and addicts, whenever Richard scored some drugs, he called everyone he knew to share it with them. Richard liked being surrounded. Even when it involved powder and rocks, he often threw the only kind of feast he knew in order to gather a willing fellowship. The story continues with Richard being put away on a murder charge and Chris meets him during a Bible study and he hears this story. But we can hear strains in this story of Richard's that we might recognize in our own life and in this text today. Richard wants to belong. His narrative is an extreme case, a desire written against the backdrop of neglect and drugs and crime. But this need to belong goes deeply into all of us. And unfortunately for some, the suspicion that no one actually wants us around, well, sometimes that suspicion goes deeper still. Perhaps you have heard the famous Groucho Marx quote, where he said, I don't trust any club that would accept people like me as a member. This quote lives on and we laugh at it because it hits a truth. We want to belong, but sometimes we find it hard to trust that someone wants us to belong. We feel like surely someone someday will soon realize that we aren't actually supposed to be here, be part of this group. We are just pretending. This sense of faking it is familiarly known as imposter syndrome. And recently, Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury himself, admitted that imposter syndrome is my constant companion. So you can be the Archbishop of the Worldwide Anglican Communion and still there is a moment when you just wait for someone to come up to you and say, we know you're faking it, the jig is up, time to leave. I recently had a conversation with a friend who admitted she was having a hard time joining a church community as an adult. She was raised in a very supportive household in a caring congregation surrounded by people who knew and loved her. She still has her faith, she believes in social justice, and she wants to work on her spiritual life, yet in her adult life, she is having a hard time getting involved. Something is holding her back. And while I could not explain to her exactly what was happening within her, I did say that this is not unusual at all. Many of us carry some fear about What will happen when we dive into a new community, when we really try to belong and take responsibility in a new group? Perhaps we fear being vulnerable or being rejected, or perhaps we are just simply skeptical that most people would want us just as we are. So when we approach a new group, those who say, we want you, we think we know how this gig works, We look around for some hidden, unspoken rules that will require us to check boxes A, B, and C before we are more fully integrated. We think they probably only really want us if we get a bit more polished and put together, take off a few more edges, add a few more layers of self-effacing charm. Whatever the fear is, this sensation is not new. Over and over again in the Bible, when God calls someone into action on behalf of God's people, 
the person inevitably responds, who, me? Lord, if you knew me like I do, you would not get excited about this idea. And this is what we can glimpse in our scriptures today. We see two people whom God has decided will become the mother and father of entire nations. These promises from God are bold and seemingly impossible. Abraham and Sarah cannot avoid the fact that they are old. They have lived for decades without any children. If it is reasonable for anyone to doubt that God actually wants them to bring about fruitful community, well then it is reasonable for Abraham and Sarah to have their doubts. Yet, despite their barrenness, despite their protestations, and even, as the children mentioned, their laughter over this promise, Abraham and Sarah are the ones that God wants. God's covenant with Abraham is everlasting and arguably the centerpiece of all of our scriptures. Paul picks it up thousands of years later to illuminate how, illuminate how this covenant is not dead and gone. It is not written, he said, only for Abraham's sake, but for ours also. God is still choosing to enter into covenant with us to become vulnerable for us. God is still choosing to bind God's self to fallible human beings, pouring out love and care, asking for our trust in return. This is the promise around which our faith is built. God does not create laws and leave creation behind like a machine. God is bound into relationship with us. It matters now who we are. It matters now what we are doing. God's promise to Abraham and Sarah doesn't require them to stop being old. Unfortunately for us, they aren't magically made young again. That's not what God's promise offers. And God's promise doesn't actually require them to be perfect. Later, Abraham and Sarah do not make some good decisions, and God needs to step in and rescue Hagar and Ishmael. What God's promise requires is that Abraham and Sarah try to trust that who they are and what they have to offer can be used by God. And this is true for us as well. We don't have to change in order for God to call us into community, into action. In order for God to have plans and make promises to us, we don't have to be anything other than ourselves. However, once we have decided to trust God, once we have decided to believe that we are desired and needed just as we are, we have to be, make a very important decision we have to decide that we are willing to be changed. We are willing to be changed by these promises. This is a very big choice, and there is a very big difference between faking it in order to enter a relationship or join a group, and entering a relationship or joining a group, and then letting yourself slowly, faithfully, honestly, deeply, be changed into your better self. Anyone who's had a child or a loving partner or a kindly, honest friend who loves you through your quirks and confronts you with your shortcomings, anyone who's had this sort of relationship knows that relationships will change you. 
Sarah and Abraham did not have to stop being old or start being perfect in order to deepen their relationship with God, but they did have to be willing to have their life turned upside down. We do not have to change in order to show up, but we do have to be willing to be changed when we are here. But I suspect that most of you, most of us in this place know that. After all, something got you through these doors today. Something urged you to pull back the warm covers, put on your shoes, walk out the front door, and step over this threshold. This is not always easy, especially on February days. And at any point, you have, could have decided that you do not need this community today. But here's the truth. This community needs you. This community needs each of us. It needs us to show up unfinished, unvarnished, unflinching, and rough around the edges. Communities like the church need the unfinished creatures that God calls together with all their nerdy ideas and outspoken opinions and unquenchable hunger for justice. Communities like the church need the irrepressible exuberance of the young and the steadfast wisdom of the old and the questioning minds of the emerging adult. The church needs human beings who show up with all that they are in order to build something that will change all of us into more loving and faithful creatures. We might not like to hear this order of things, Because sometimes we want to say, wait, wait, a minute, hold up. Let me fix a few things first. Let me get older, wiser, or start to act younger. Let me become more spiritual. But we do not get to say anything before God says, I want you. I have plans for you. This is scary in a society that thrives on the industry of perfecting ourselves, where uh, celebrities hide out until they lose all their baby weight, and politicians must shove every family skeleton deep into their closets, we don't always want to join a group of people who are as unfinished as we are. We don't like looking around and seeing those who are imperfect and being reminded that we fit right in. As Tony Campolo, the pastor and evangelist, says, When people say, I love Jesus, but the church is full of hypocrites, I say, that's why you're going to feel right at home among us. (laughs) He goes on to say, I'm not what I ought to be, but in spite of the flaws and shortcomings, I'm not what I was. I am on my way. Friends, the bad news about belonging is this. We are the ones that God wants. But the good news about belonging is this. We are the ones that God wants. And so we must practice trusting our creator, putting ourselves into spaces that risk our vulnerability, our self-reliance. We must practice risking that we might be known and loved just as we are, and that we might be changed even so. Abraham and Sarah eventually come to trust God, hoping against hope, as Paul describes, Even when they are skeptical, even when they are unfaithful, they begin to trust that God is still standing there saying, it is you that I want. Trust me. I want to use you. As I mentioned, the story of Richard continues. 
and Chris describes a Bible study in the prison where they talk about the parable of the wedding feast that Jesus tells, a wedding feast that involves inviting all of the least likely and least likable hard scrabble from the streets to sit down at the king's table. Richard decided to act out this parable. So he's out of his chair with the New Testament open like a script, ready to block out this scene with the jail roster, company of players before him. He says, so the king sends out more of his messengers to the streets. He's looking for more people, right? And as he's blocking out the scene with these characters around him, slowly the pages come alive before us, words becoming flesh. Those other mothers missed their chance, see? So the king is like, go out into the streets, tell all the mess-ups and the bad people, and here his inked fingers swept over the whole room at this, tell all the bad people, like us, to come to the party. The other guys were not as excited as Richard, but Richard was intent on sharing his newfound wealth of enthusiasm, not keeping it all for himself. So he dragged Rascal and Bruno across the room from the circle and left them there, and then he came back to continue his instruction. So Jesus, I mean the king or whatever, is throwing this gangster party, but he's all rejected and stuff by the people with money, who I guess have better things to do, and he doesn't want a party with no one coming, because that would stink, so he invites street people. The two sheepish criminals, Bruno and Rascal, play along, follow Richard to our circle around the table and take a seat among us, but Richard remains standing. See, people like me, we know where all the bad people are at. So we got to be the ones to go and invite them, right? I'm your messenger, right here. He has both a smile and an intensity at this point, tapping his chest. It was as though Richard was suddenly sensing an alignment between the desire of heaven and his frustrated story so far. He walks with an exaggerated strut over to the confused homies he'd left in the corner, grabs them by their arms and acts it out. Hey, check it out, he explains to these outsiders. We're going to roll this party. It's a classy kind of thing, but people like us can come. In this story, Richard is still in prison. He is still a convict. And yet he is still teaching this scripture passage with the growing belief that this story matters for him. What God is saying through these words matters for Richard Mejia, convict and beloved child of God, right then and right there. We can find it hard to trust that God wants to use us. I wonder what you are finding hard to trust today. I wonder what you are being asked to join and what you're feeling resistance towards. I wonder where you are wanted, where you are needed. Because I know someone who wants each of us, God our creator. And I know one community that needs each of us. We do. Let us pray. Holy Creator, all we have, all that we are is yours. All that you have called us to be is of your making. Show us how you want to use us today and teach us how to trust you that you, in this time and place, have something for us to do. Amen.